This week, I kind of want to uh, jump into something, and again, it's, it, it's been kind of nip and tuck here lately. I keep, you know, going before the Lord saying, all right, what are we going to do here? And he's kind of leaving me hanging a little bit, so just bear with me. I'm pretty sure today we're starting a series. Um, things got adjusted this morning just a little bit as I came in early and went through the message. Um, but what I want to talk about uh, today comes out of uh, kind of a difficult time. I mean, not real difficult. When you're um, a pastor or when you have to create something, musicians I've heard say the same thing, writers I've heard say the same thing, sometimes it's difficult when things are busy to get in the right frame of mind to sit down and write or to, to cr construct a sermon or to write music. And this has been that kind of season for me. It's been a very busy time with Bible school and we have some technical things happening in the church and some of you know I'm kind of the computer geek around here. And so there's been a lot to do and because of that it's been tough to, to kind of get, get quiet and, and really hear from God. And so a lot of times when I find myself in that position, what I like to do is read some of the classics, you know, some of the classic writers that I've always gone to. How many of you, uh, anybody know the name Oswald Chambers? Anybody ever read Oswald Chambers, His Utmost for His Highest? Great stuff. He's one of the ones I go to frequently. Um, E.M. Bounds, anybody ever heard of E.M. Bounds? He's written a lot on prayer. There's yeah, Carrie, once again. Carrie's, she's backing me up on all these. Um, who was the other one I said this morning? It was another one. Oh, Richard Foster. Anybody ever read Richard Foster? These are some of the guys that I go to. This week I ended up um, on Bonhoeffer. His name just jumped right out of my head, Pat. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I didn't even put it in my notes. I knew it so well. Anyway, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Anybody ever heard that name before? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German man who lived, obviously, in Germany during the time of the Nazis. And so he had uh, this whole... Um, life story of basically standing up for what he believed in in the face of some pretty insurmountable odds. And he was a, a teacher, he was a professor, he taught, he preached, he, he literally did all of these things. And his life was ended very prematurely, um, eventually because of him standing up against uh, the Nazi government, he ended up being hung in a German prison. And, and so he wrote some things in, in the midst of that about Christian community, real Christian community community. That's not the name of the book, but that's what I kind of took from it. And so this week I kind of delved into that book and it brought up to me some ideas that I feel like apply to today because in his time they were dealing with division in their nation. Many of us don't think about the fact that in Germany during that time as Hitler was starting to come to power, there were forces that were opposed to him. There were parties that tried to stand against him. There were Christians on both sides of the argument. Some believed that he would be their savior and would make Germany a great nation once again. And some believed that he was going to be the downfall of their nation and would destroy it and, and leave them in ruins. There were all of these divisions that took place in the middle of that time period in Germany. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer was literally living in the midst of all of this strife and all of this difficulty with Christians asking, Asking questions like, how do we go through this? What is our responsibility? Should we stand up and say, no, this isn't right? Or, or is it okay just to simply hide in the shadows and hope nobody sees us? And, and obviously because of his death, we know where he stood on that matter. But more than anybody else, during turbulent times, he understood what it meant to live in real Christian community. Because in that time, community did not get to be what he had hoped it would be or what he wanted it to be. They had to sneak around behind the government's back. And, and oftentimes their fellowships were very small. And so this book that he wrote, I, I'm kind of borrowing some ideas from. And, and today's message is founded kind of based on this scripture, Psalm 133. Let me read this for you. 
This is uh, from Israel's songbook, if, if you want some explanation on that. Psalms 133, and it's a psalm of David. How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. Funny story, when I was a kid, and because of the word brothers in there, and the fact that I had two, two brothers, I thought that the writer of this must have been a parent who was just happy to have a little bit of quiet time. You know what I'm saying? The first time I ever heard this, I thought, this is some mom who's really happy that her sons are getting along right now. That was the first thing that came into my mind. I don't know why I remember that, but I was very young. How wonderful and pleasant it is, and how wonderful and pleasant it would be if they would just get along, right? When brothers live together in harmony, for harmony is as precious as the anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head that ran down his beard and onto the border of his robe. Now, I know we don't necessarily get that reference, but for the Hebrews, for the Israelites, that would have been a treasured memory from their past of when Aaron was anointed as the first priest by Moses. He goes on to say, Harmony is as refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion. And there the Lord will per, has pronounced his blessing, even life everlasting. How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. What does real harmony look like? What does real Christian community look like? Have you ever been disappointed by an experience with a church or an experience with Christian community or an experience that maybe didn't live up to your expectations when maybe you came to a church or to a Bible study or maybe you met a Christian friend and, and you had all these grand notions about what that relationship would look like or what that fellowship might look like and, and all of a sudden as you get involved in it, it just didn't quite measure up. Maybe some of you can remember a time when you uh, thought that, that you were you know part of, of the inner circle of a church or you had lots of friends and all of a sudden you found yourself kind of left out in the cold. I think a lot of us can think of a time maybe when church didn't meet our expectations in that way or maybe some Bible study that we thought was going to just really tie us in didn't necessarily connect with us. I've even had some situations in my life where people that I knew and respected and, and reached out to and wanted to start getting together on a regular basis because, you know, I was taught as a young pastor that one of the best ways you can get better at being a pastor is to rub shoulders with other pastors and learn from them and grow with them. And, and so I'd reach out to these guys and they'd have lunch with me one time. And, and I got to be honest with you, some of these pastors, the moment they figured out that I didn't have anything to contribute to their success... Stop calling me and stop returning my call. Anybody ever had that happen where you thought you were like best buds with somebody and all of a sudden it's like you can hear a pin drop on the other end. There's nothing there. And I've had that happen. Maybe some of you have experienced that. I think all of us have expectations when we come into church and when we come into Bible studies and Christian fellowships about what real church community, real Christian community should be. And most of us have been disappointed at least once or twice in our lives. What is the nature of real Christian community? How do we as churches try to construct a ministry that meets the expectations of, or at least um, is what people are picturing when they walk through our doors? Because you know what? Every church I know is trying to solve this problem. Every church I know is trying to figure out, you know, when we get visitors, how do we make sure that when they walk in the door, everything is exactly what they'd always hoped for so that they'll come back again? You know what I'm saying? They won't tell you that, but I guarantee you these are conversations that happen behind closed doors. Why? Because we love to keep people. 
We want people in our pews. Do you have any idea how much more fun it is with people in the pews as opposed to being here by yourself? During COVID, I got to experience that. Preaching to an empty room is almost as boring as right now with most of you sleeping. I'm just kidding. I'm just a few smile, few smirks. We're getting there. But no, it was horrible. I can tell you, when you're preaching to an empty room, it is tough, it is hard, and it is no fun. You can't pick on anybody. There's nobody there. I mean, who are you going to call out? You guys had beanie babies on the back of the pews when nobody was here. It was great, but it's not as much fun to pick on a beanie baby. It's just not, you know. So it's great when people come. And every church that I know is trying to figure out how do we meet the expectations of people so that when they come into our fellowship, when they come into our church, they'll find what they're looking for. Well, here's the real question. Is that even the question? Should we be trying to fulfill their expectations? Should we be trying to meet every we, uh, dream that they have and every need that they have? Should we be trying to build the church of everyone's dreams? And I think the answer is no. In fact, I think our Christian community, our, our relationships with one another, the way that we support each other and care for each other and relate to each other should be founded and based on one thing and one thing alone. And that is our relationship with Jesus. I think Jesus should be the standard, the gold standard, when it comes to us figuring out how do we do Christian community. I believe he is the reason that we meet together and he should be the best influence on how we treat one another as a part of a Christian community. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Christ. Think about it. The scriptures tell us, listen, you are saved by grace, not of works, lest anyone should, anybody remember? Boast, right? You didn't get here on your own. Nothing that you could do got you in the situation that you are in with God. And if you are a part of God's family, if you're a part of his kingdom, you are only here because of the grace of God shown through Jesus who was willing to go to the cross of Calvary to die for you. And so if Jesus is the one that is the reason we're all able to be here, and if he is the one that has caused us to all be together, I mean, I like most of you people, but if it wasn't for Jesus, I probably wouldn't be here. I would never have come to the serial city. Because, especially if I'd have known how many weed shops they were going to put up this past year, I would definitely not have come. But I'm just saying, if it weren't for Jesus, you and I wouldn't know each other. And most of you who aren't family probably wouldn't. Jesus is the reason that we meet. And he is also the one that we're supposed to be focused on. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the prime example of how to live with, with um, each other in Christian community. Because we see in his example how he treated his disciples, how he interacted with other people. Jesus should be the keystone of everything that we do. Our Christian fellowship, our real Christian community should be built on Christ. And as we build our community on Christ, as we seek him more than anything else, our, our common seeking will draw us together in community. And that's how it's supposed to work. I always draw these triangles for couples that are going through premarital counseling you know you got God up here and Bob or Frank or whatever his name is is down here it's never Bob or Frank but whoever it is and then you know Missy or Sally or nobody's ever named Missy or Sally either you got the guy here the girl here and God's up here and I always try to tell them listen if your focus is on Jesus and as you move toward him what's going to happen it's common sense you will definitely move closer to each other and you know what in the Christian church I believe that's what will happen if we have our focus on Jesus, it will draw us into real community because we learn real Christian community from our relationship, 
with Christ. Ephesians 2.14 is a letter, it's part of a letter written by Paul the Apostle to the church at Ephesus. And in that scripture he says this, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Listen, when Paul uh, was going around planting churches, there was this division happening between Jews and Gentiles. It was there when Jesus walked on this earth. There was the Jews, there was the Gentiles, there was the Samaritans who were kind of in the middle somewhere and nobody liked them. But there was these prejudices that existed during that time. And Paul is basically saying to the early church, listen, Jesus died so that we wouldn't have to have these barriers anymore. And eventually the church overcame those barriers because you and I are sitting here. But it was hard for a while. There were baby steps that they had to take. They went through all kinds of conversations about whether or not new Christians who weren't Jews should have to be Jews before they could become Christians. That was actually a debate that they were having. Now, can you imagine? You got people coming into the church left and right, but then you got this sect of the church that basically says the first requirement of being a part of our church is you have to go get circumcised. Talk about driving people away from your church. How'd, how'd you like that? Some of you don't know what circumcision is, apparently, because you're not even chuckling. There's a few people laughing. That is not a church growth tactic that would work, let my friends. Hey, yeah, welcome to First Church. Let us schedule your surgery. I can see it now. That's the first thing they say coming through the door. No. What about all the foods that the Jews aren't allowed to eat? What about all these other uh, you know, religious practices that the Jews had? They had this giant debate. And James, the leader of the church at the time, after all of this strife and turmoil kind of went on and all the, the growing pains of how to figure this all out, he stood before the church and said, listen, it is my conviction that we should not make it difficult for those who are not Jews to come to know Christ. So we're not going to put a bunch of requirements in front of them. They need to know Jesus and Jesus only. So they had these debates. They had these divisions just like we have today. And Jesus was the one who brought them together in himself, brought peace to us, it says. He united the Jews and Gentiles. And basically because of Jesus and what he did on the cross, we have the ability to be one, to be in community. If you look at it a little further, I just want to kind of share again from my own experience that I think churches struggle with relationships. I think that some of us are not very good at times at having relationships with each other. I think church sometimes we don't quite know enough about how to treat people and we certainly don't know enough about how to treat people the way that Jesus treats people. Now I know a lot of people who are uh, popular. I know a lot of people who can draw a crowd but oftentimes in our world we base our friendships and we base our community on the wrong things. Everybody knows somebody who won the lottery or suddenly got a good job or got rich and suddenly they had friends coming out of their ears, right? Their, their community expanded, amen? Until when? Until the money's gone and then it is, goes right back down. How many of you have been in a situation where you came into a church or came into a new group and you met somebody, you thought this group of people was awesome, and so you, know, you started meeting together with them and everything was going great, and over time you realize, wow, these people don't all agree with me in some ways, and, and maybe I don't like these people as much as I thought, and, and maybe your, your friendship with them was based on what you thought were common beliefs and interests, and suddenly you find out they disagree with me about some stuff, and all of a sudden the, the fellowship starts to kind of break up. We base our friendships sometimes on the wrong things. In fact, there's a thing that happens to pastors every time we come to a new church. 
everybody wants to be the new pastor's friend. And so we have friends out the ears and they all come and they want to spend time with us. And they want to get to know us. And it's awesome and it's great and it's wonderful. And then over a course of about six years, guess where they all go? I don't know either. And for a while, I actually said to Tori, you know what? I'm a really nice guy till you get to know me, apparently. Right? Have any of you ever thought that before? It seems like the more I get to know people, the less they want to be around me. Maybe I'm just obnoxious. I don't know. But here's what I think happens. I think when you first meet somebody, it's, it's like, kind of like that marriage thing. You kind of put on airs. You show them who you want to show them. And as you get to know them better and better, you learn all the little quirks and all the little differences and some of the things they believe that you didn't realize they believed. And maybe you find out some things about their past that you didn't know were part of their past. Maybe you find some things out about where they want to be in the future that you don't necessarily like. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves kind of pushing away from people. Well, listen, I've got an answer to that. Jesus had an answer for that. And the answer is him. It's Jesus. Because Jesus got together with 12 men from completely different walks of life and created a Christian community that changed the entire world. Do you get that? He put up with 12 guys with no housing, no hotels, no constant food source, and no financial means whatsoever. They just lived off the land, went wherever they went. You want to talk about some frustrating times? Jesus held it together. Why? Because he knows how. And you know what? We in the church, we're not nearly as good at that. Why? Because we don't let him inform our fellowships. We don't let him inform our communities. You see, the key here is this. What we experience from Jesus, we need to learn for ourselves. And once we experience it from Jesus, then we're supposed to pass it on to everybody else. So it goes without saying that whatever relationship we have with Jesus, as we experience his love and his mercy and his grace, we're supposed to take that and learn how to then share that with other people because Jesus is our example. And so as we get to know him better, we start to look more and more like him, even in the area of our relationships. We're supposed to learn how to become Christian communities by looking at what Jesus did. We learn from our relationship with Jesus how to become Christian communities. And Jesus was awesome at letting people speak. He was awesome at hearing what other people had to say. He was awesome at listening to people that he didn't agree with. He was awesome at, at loving people that nobody else wanted to love. And you know what? In the church, I think we struggle with that. You learn from Christ as you accept that from Christ and as you receive it. The Apostle Paul was one who knew how God's love worked. How many of you have ever heard the passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 13? You ever heard 1 Corinthians 13? What's it called? Say it out loud. The love chapter. That should be like a reality show on TV or something. It's the love chapter. I, ha I say it at every wedding that I do unless the couple tells me they don't want it. It's a default part of every wedding that I do because in my opinion, Paul has so much great stuff to say about what biblical, godly, Jesus-like love is. It's love is patient, love is kind. It, it does not envy, it does not boast, it doesn't get puffed up, it keeps no record of wrongs. Some of you out there need to hear that. Doesn't keep a record of wrongs. All of these things that Paul says about love and they're absolutely spot on. How did Paul know? How did Paul know what real godly biblical love looked like? You know how Paul knew? Paul knew because he had experienced that love directly from the source. He had experienced the love of Jesus directly from the lips of Jesus. You see, Paul wasn't always a Christian. Paul was that guy that was persecuting the church and, and trying to destroy the church until God caught up with him 
Jesus caught up with him on the road to Damascus and shined a bright light in his eyes and knocked him to the ground. And said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul's like, I don't even know who I'm persecuting. I think his voice wobbled like that. I really do. I mean, you do not have confidence when you've just been knocked to the ground. Amen? And Paul's like, I, I don't even know who you are. Who are you? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go do what I tell you to do. That's my translation. That's a, that's a little sub, anyway. And Paul went out and he, and he experienced the forgiveness and the grace and the love of God. And as a result of that, when Corinth, the church at Corinth was having some issues, he was able to write 1 Corinthians 13 to them to tell them what the real love of God looked like. And friends, that is the love that we need to see in real Christian communities. When Jesus offers forgiveness, we need to, to, to take that forgiveness and learn how to offer that forgiveness to others. I don't know about you, but this world's forgiveness is kind of limited. You know, I hear a lot of people saying, well, I'll forgive that person if they ask me, right? Or I'll forgive them if they do this, this, and this. Well, I'll forgive them if they really repent. I'll forgive them if they get on their knees. I'll forgive them if, right? God's forgiveness doesn't do that. God's forgiveness is amazing. What did Jesus say when he was still on the cross? Not one of the people at the foot of the cross asked Jesus for forgiveness. And what did he say? He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If Jesus forgives unconditionally, shouldn't we forgive unconditionally? If Jesus pursued people, if Jesus went after people and invited them, God pursued us throughout history, through Jesus coming to this earth. Mankind sinned and God just wouldn't let us go. He kept coming. In fact, the Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And through Jesus, God sought us out even when we were still enemies of God. And God still came after us. If Jesus did that... Shouldn't we do that? Shouldn't we be willing to, to pursue people, to pray for them, to keep witnessing to them, to keep living Jesus before their eyes until that day when they finally come to know him? Shouldn't we be willing to give each other the benefit of the doubt? What we learn from Jesus, what we learn from Jesus, we should share with other people. We learn from Christ, <clears throat> excuse me, by receiving from him and we pass what we receive from him along to other people. Jesus never forced his will on anyone. He invited them to come. But what I've noticed in my years in the church, and I've been in the church all my life, I'm pretty sure that my mother had me here as soon as we got home from the hospital. Not here, but in my church. My mother was not one of those moms that believe you should keep the baby home to avoid germs. In fact, she probably figured the more germs I came in contact with, the better off I'd be. Anybody else run through barnyards barefoot when they were kids? That was me. So the moment I could be there, my mom took me to church. So that means I've been in church for 52 years. I've been pastoring churches, and I feel really old. I calculated this this morning. I've been a full-time pastor in churches for 27 years. That's a long time. Don't. I wanted you to feel sorry for me, not clap for me. I've been observing the church my whole life. And what I've observed of the church is this. We're really good at quoting chapter and verse. We're really good at defining our theology. In fact, we can tell you what we believe in really, really majestic and powerful language. 
We can point to our piety, because I grew up in a holiness church. You know, don't you know, smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls that do. Yeah. Thought I'd throw that out there. I haven't said it in a while. It's the way I grew up. If you just do this, you'll be fine. Or don't do this. How do you say that? Anyway, we can point to our piety. We can rattle off our theology. We can tell you chapter and verse. But you know what we're not good at? Being nice to people. Being kind to people. Treating people the way Jesus treated people. Regardless of who they are or what they think or what they believe. Now Jesus did go toe-to-toe with some people. I understand that. Let's be clear, most of them were religious people. Most of the sinners in his life, he sat down and ate with. He had conversations with. And the people that disagreed with him, he often had conversations until they turned and walked away. Listen, from what I have observed, the church is great at pointing to our old holiness and our piety, but we're terrible at treating people the way Jesus treated people. Now, there's always a couple in every church who are really good at loving everybody and loving the unloved and and being kind to their neighbor and loving their enemies and and praying for them who persecute them. But, But it seems like over the years, the majority of people that I've seen are good at loving the people they like, right? And you know what Jesus said about that? He said, what good is that? Even the unsaved do that. Even the the sinners do that. We're called to a higher standard as the people of God. If we're going to have real Christian community, then we need to learn how to treat each other the way that Jesus would treat the people around him. And that means that if someone opposes us, we love them anyway. We might have a conversation with them. We might talk about how we disagree, but we have a conversation with them. That means that whatever Jesus would do, we do. And the only way we can really fix this problem, the only way we can really figure out what that is, is that we need more of Jesus in our lives. More of Jesus in every way in our lives. And some of you are like, that's a great thing to say, Pastor, but how does that actually work out in real life? I got news for you. It's kind of a process. It's one of those things that we call a tension to hold not a problem to solve, right? This is an ongoing, everyday thing that if you are interested in pursuing it will cost you the rest of your life because you will never come to know everything about Jesus until you walk over the threshold of heaven, amen? I mean, I'm pretty easy to figure out. Most of you probably already know everything about me, but when it comes to knowing Jesus, you're gonna continue to learn about him until the day you cross the threshold of heaven. And so more of Jesus means this, that, that we spend more time learning what he was like by reading the stories about him. We spend more time studying his teachings. We spend a lot of time rubbing shoulders with people who wanna talk about Jesus too because sometimes I learn more from a brother or sister in Christ than I do by reading the scripture by myself. That we spend time having uh, good discussions. Some might even call them arguments about what theology means and what Jesus means to us in a way that helps us to grow, but it's more than just the head knowledge. It means getting on your knees before God in your prayer closet, in your car, at the prayer service on Wednesdays at noon, whatever it might be, and you literally pray the prayer of saying, God, I just, I want to know more of you. I want to be more of you. I want to become like you. Please show me how to walk like you walk. Show me how to live like you live. Make everything that comes out of my mouth sound like you would have said it. All of this will lead us closer to Jesus. And what we need is more of him. And until we solve this issue, we cannot have good Christian community. 
So again, what I've observed in the church is that we're really good at minding our P's and Q's, but we're not very good at loving people like Jesus did. I believe we've got to get better because we're never going to have the kind of community we could have. And so here's how I want to close today. I'm, I'm almost out of time. Here's how I want to close today. In just a moment, I want to lead, lead you in the sinner's prayer because I believe, obviously, if you've never met Jesus, how can you possibly venture to be with him? And so I believe everybody needs to know Jesus firsthand. And the first step of that is the simple sinner's prayer where you confess your sins to God, invite Jesus to come in and to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and, and to be your Lord. And so I'm going to lead everybody in that prayer. You can all pray it with me to yourselves as I pray it out loud. And for those of you that have already done it, hey, it never hurts to re-up, right? It never hurts to remind yourself of what you did years ago. But then I'm going to pray another prayer. And that prayer is going to be aimed at some of you that, that got saved when you were five, like I did. Or got saved when you were ten, like I did. And you've been living your whole life trying to obey every law and every rule that the church told you was important. Some of you even still wear ties on Sunday. Actually, nobody here does. But You've been trying your best your whole life to be exactly what everybody told you you should be. But maybe the one thing that you missed in the process was that personal relationship with Jesus. And so that second prayer is going to be an invitation for him to come in and, and work out that second work of grace that we sometimes talk about where, you know, you may have gotten God, but this is the one where he gets you. Bow your heads with me if you would. And again, I'm not presumptuous. If you don't want to pray these prayers, you certainly don't have to. And if you say them with no meaning behind them, then they, they mean nothing. But if you say them, and if you believe them and if you mean them, they will make a difference in your life. So pray with me quietly as I pray aloud. Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died for me on the cross of Calvary. I want your forgiveness. I accept your grace. I want you to take my sins and remove them from my life. Be my Lord, be my Savior, be my God. And those, for those of you that have been Christian a long time, maybe you would consider praying this prayer with me as well. Say the words if you mean them. Jesus, I've loved you my whole life. I've done everything that I thought I should do. But deep down in my soul, I still feel like there's a vacancy. I know you've forgiven my sins. I know you've given me your grace. But I want more of you. Not just today, but every day. I want more of you. Help me to become like you. Father in heaven, I come before you today and I thank you for this group of people who has listened to these words that, Lord, I, I pray strongly came from you this morning. I believe that somebody here needed to hear what was shared and in a desperate way. 
If there are those here, Lord, that have accepted you for the very first time, I pray that you would give them the courage to tell myself or someone else that they did that so that we can celebrate with them as the angels in heaven are now celebrating. If there are those that prayed that second prayer and, and are simply desiring more of you, then God, I, I pray that you would help them to see that, that following Jesus and, and living a holy life is not just not doing the bad things, it is absolutely showing up to do the good things. And one of those things is loving our neighbor as ourselves and loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. God, help us to stop being a country and a nation and a church that actually uses our faith to divide us, that uses our faith as an excuse to treat people poorly. And help us to realize that even if we disagree with others, we still have a responsibility to love them as you would love them. And God, I ask that you would work this out in our lives because we know that without your help, we can't do it. Our, our lives are yours. We're only here because of you. Help us to come to know you better. And I pray, God, that in a year's time, we would be able to look at this church especially and maybe even the churches around us in this community and see a group of believers that, that love each other as Jesus loved. And we'll give you all the praise and glory when that happens. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.